We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Corey Glover is the lead singer of the biggest and baddest black rock band of all time, living color they roared into america's consciousness in 1988 with an incendiary song called cult of personality once that came out nothing was ever the same again but it was a record that was challenging to black and white audiences and it was also challenging to be the lead singer of a band that everyone thought of as belonging to the genius on lead guitar vernon reed it was Vernon's band, and that caused a lot of tension. We get into that tension inside the band and explain why they broke up in 1995 and why they got back together in 2000. We also talk about Corey's role in Platoon, Oliver Stone's incredible movie about Vietnam. But we start with Corey playing David Bowie or singing his part in a Bowie band with the guys from the Bowie band behind him on tour in recent weeks. That's a heavy job. It's Corey Glover from Living Color on Torre Show. You've been rocking out with the Bowie band. Yes. Singing David Bowie's parts with his band. That yes. sounds like a tremendous amount of pressure to go on tour singing <laughs> Bowie, which is asking a lot right with his guys who know him musically personally everything right behind you how's that going weird <laughs> um they, they like they're very encouraging which is which is good but you know i'm not gonna sound like david no. there's no there's no way I, I am going to sound like david but they encourage what david encouraged which was like the sense of experimentation with it and letting it Letting letting it breathe, mm. and so it took some time. It took a it took a little bit of time for me to for them to get acclimated to me, me to get acclimated to them. I'm not I'm one of many singers that are on that are on the gig, and you know I'm doing particular songs that sort of I don't know guess that fits my wheelhouse in the idiom of David Bowie. So I do Young Americans, which mm. is sort of a, a his homage to black soul music in the 70s. So I guess that's why I'm there. And <laughs> don't ask. Um, so I do what I do to it. And they kind of like that, which is good. Mm, mm. See, you are originally a soul singer. Pretty much. You you come from a soul idiom. I've come from, yeah, that and gospel music to a certain degree. When um, you were growing up in Brooklyn, yeah. what did you love listening to? Listen to a lot of stuff. Um, 
like whatever was current at the time, but I found there used to be a radio station here in the city called CBS FM, mm-hmm. and it's Saturday night. They do the doo-wop shop, mm-hmm. and I listened to that stuff, and like that shit fascinated me. <laughs> like these are just voices. These are all there's usually dudes, and there's like street corner. They got some street corner people, and um, and it was fascinating to me. Um, Frankie Lyman was incredible to me, and I was like, I wanted to sound something like that. And then, and I'm, but I'm in Brooklyn, so there's a hip hop thing going on. Um, going to school here in, in the city, and and I'm going downtown, and the and the hardcore and the punk scene is going on. So it's like, where am I gonna fit in in all of this? Mm. Um, where am I gonna? Where can I put myself in all of this stuff? And fortunately for me, it was the whole idea of what Living Color was was right in my wheelhouse. It's like taking some taking a little bit of everything and putting it all together and hear what it sounds like. I mean, yeah, you're the front man of perhaps the greatest black rock band of all time, but I always thought of you as a rock guy. I didn't realize that you come from an entirely different idiom. Yeah, I wasn't. That's what was really strange when you meet up with other people who do this and they were like, and Dio is their favorite. And and they all they want to talk about are these, you know, rock icons like Ozzy Osbourne and and this kind of stuff. And I was like, "Mm, I don't know what you're talking about. That (laughs) history is not really part of your. It's 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 a very small piece in more than no more than particularly when I got into the hardcore thing, scene and I was listening to Circle Jerks and, and and Leeway and then I went to a hardcore matinee with the brain with the bad brains and my world just mm. turned in upside down I was like I could do that mm. I can do that I can do that I can try to do that I can approximate that but I want to do that and that's what turned everything around but you are a much more expressive dynamic traditional singer mm. than we tradition than we normally get in rock right right they are sonically generally are sonically very direct right right which i'm trying to be nice where you can be it's a podcast nobody gives a fuck <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> your, your sound was much more operatic I, relatively it, speaking it could be um it, it all depended on the song that whatever i was doing was in service to whatever message we were trying to get we were trying to put across yeah so if Open Letter to a Landlord was different than Glamour Boys. Yeah. Was, those are two different characters singing this song. So you have to put yourself in that mindset, you know, that the guy who's singing Open Letter to a Landlord is eulogizing his home. You're playing a character in your mind with each of these. Every one of them. Every one of them. Everyone is a different person. So who is the singer of Glamour Boys? That character originally, what who that person was was a cashier at one of the fashion houses in Soho. It was in my mind who I thought I was. Okay, I'm like like a salesperson at Fiorucci. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. And that's who I thought I was. Okay, talking about these people that came in and out of the store, and then later on I realized I am that person. And so, uh, I or or at least I was that person, and I have to. I see myself, really, sort of, in self reflection. So it's constantly, and it's the best way to describe it is an, is an acting exercise. It is a, it is an exercise in character development, constantly. Okay. So who? Okay, 
who's the character behind Cult of Personality? He, it's, he or they are sort of the muses speaking to the situation. They, he, the, the, the story is, this is not just news. This is how the world works. This is, it's, it's a, it's a thousand uh, mile view mm-hmm. as opposed to being in it. So there's a, there's a little bit of detachment to Epic. it. Epic. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, and there's, there's some, you know, on high looking down, seeing it, Seeing the whole picture as opposed to the micro, the micro of the picture. I mean, you start off with "look in my eye," right, and then you hold "eye" really right. long, right. and it 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 seems like now you put it like like a dictator saying, like, yeah, yeah. "Now you are mine." Now, I'll pull you in, and so you're you're either the person who's very cognizant of his own his or her own power at that point. You are very cognizant of where I can take you just with the sound of my voice mm. and that that's that in of itself is is a compelling sort of argument about what people how people sort of move a it, it an idea that move a place in this world moves it move people to a place in this world is there an emotional like i know there's an emotional preparation to mm. do a scene if you're doing a movie or a play mm. or whatever but when you're okay we're recording Called the personality tonight, right. right? I assume like you know the track is already laid down. Right, you feel it's epic. Is there like a okay? I gotta like get up to this high level to do this, plan out this character, and reach that emotional level to get ready. I have to do it while I'm doing it. It has to. Ha- it has it to happens in the booth. It has to occur in in the in the moment that you decide. To, you're looking at the lyrics and you're reading you're reading the lyrics and saying okay. Here, I, here's where that goes. Here's where that. Here's here's the here's my start. Because if you know the ending, it's not exciting. You know, if you know if you know how this is all going to end, it's not that exciting, and it's not, and it doesn't. You don't get the sense of of you going on the journey with the person that's listening. But you have to get personally like amped up to yeah. do a song. Oh yeah. Like that. I mean, oh, yeah. take me through the recording of that particular song. Is that one night or is it a couple nights or? It, the putting on the basics was one session and then it was the overdubs which were basically about guitars and some drum stuff and some and a few bits and pieces was another half of the session and then the vocals came so i've had this time to listen to this song sort of progress in terms of how it was built and which was very different than the way we wrote it actually because when we originally wrote it, you know, the whole idea of cult personality was not was sort of taken out of the verses and made its own chorus. And the producer at Stasium decided just sing sing the chorus first, then do the verse. So sing the chorus again, and then do the verse. And then you got it. I love songs that start yeah. with the chorus. Yeah, that yeah, feels yeah. really smart. Yeah, yeah. You know, because then you're like sixty seconds into the song, you're doing the chorus again. Right. And I feel like. I'm into it rather than learning the chorus at 45 seconds in, <laughs> right, right. and then the second time. Well, we, that's it, that's how we minutes. wrote it. It was like the chorus first, and just like no, just do the verse, then do the chorus. Then like so, he switched it all around. So we're relearning the song, okay, versus the way we played it live, and we wrote that song in one session. Like the song, the the I had an idea for a riff 
that I sang to Vernon, and Vernon heard it as the riff. You you <laughs> told him the riff. That he, what did you tell him to do? It's is a lot more complicated than what he came up with. That's that's for sure. <laughs> yours, yours was more complicated than he. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I was like, I was trying to play to his strengths, mm. and and so it was like. And he's like, all right, watch this. All right, keep it there, keep it there. Because we weren't seeing eye to eye on what it was. Mm. And so we had this riff, and we kept playing this riff. And the riff felt really good. And, you know, I think it was Muzzy said, okay, we need a change in there somewhere. Let's do this. And this was completely sort of being done on the fly and being changed and created on the fly. And Vernon had a book of lyrics and he had these lyrics that he had for a long time. He says, try this, try using, doing this. And it's like, so you gave him the riff and he, he gave, gave you the, the lyrics. Riff. There yeah. you go. Yeah. So <laughs> it built itself pretty much in one night. And we had a rehearsal studio in, in, uh, in Bushwick over right by where the, uh, where the F train, not the F train, is the F train that always goes in the Broadway Junction, whatever it was. So the, the, so you could just just the tableau of this. In, we're in this dank little studio loft, and the train's going by, and we're making this. We're making this song. Songs like that and "Open Letter to a Landlord" sort of were built in the in that place. That like that ending of "Open Letter to a Landlord" with train goes by was what really happened. Uh-huh, it's like we finished uh-huh. the song and the train went by. Like that works. <laughs> Did, were you listening to it and going like, "Ooh, this is some face melting shit"? Or did you not? See no, we that like yet? no. We were like, "This shit is good. This is I like this. This, this is that. Shit. I, I like that. I like that. I like I like doing that." And and that's that was the criteria for us to play it. Like if it felt good to do, let's do it. I mean, you certainly didn't think, "Oh, this this is this, this is that monster shit. No, this is gonna no, change our lives. No, no, this is gonna be a global smash." Mm-mm. We didn't think that the first record was gonna do anything. We were all prepared to be like, "We're gonna live in a van." When you say first record, you mean the first album? The first album, yeah. Because "Cold Personality" was not the first single. It wasn't the first. It was the first one that hit. Yeah. But you, so you guys clearly did not think, "Oh, this is our monster smash," because no. you didn't put it as the first single. <laughs> no, we thought it was a good song. It was it was the better song on the album, and we were like. We need to progress. We we want we wanted our our success to be out of the fact that you came to see us live and you were very you were you understood and you went home and bought the record. You guys were only a year old as a band. That this particular iteration of the band was about a year old. How old were you? Twenty. When I first got in the band, I was twenty three. Take me back for a second. How did you develop as a singer? Church. Church, <laughs> you know, which, I, which church? I, my, I, 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 uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church over on uh, on St. John's and in best like in Crown Heights, like so Baptist Methodist kind of thing. Methodist. Like gospel music it was choir, was, big was, choir, was choir. Yeah, I was in the youth choir, um, and I wasn't the singer in the family. My brother was the singer. My brother was like the singer. He older was brother. The older brother. He's a heartthrob singer, good looking guy. Just sing high and do all this stuff. I'm sorry. Is there a little bitterness? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's a better singer. Yeah, he's better he's a, looking. Yeah, he's he older. Was, yeah. He's taller. What the fuck? Mm. He got all the giveaways. And then I got taller and I became a famous singer. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> What's his name? Tommy. Tommy. Was yeah. there a point where you're like, I got you, Ty. I, I got you. you. I, I got you. you. No, but the story, as the story goes, like, he, it was like Easter, and my brother had a big solo that he was doing for, for a church, and I was pissed off because it was like, everybody, everybody was talking about just, he's the greatest, he sounds so good, and he looks so good. Uh, and I told my grandmother, was like, look, he's all right. <laughs> I can sing. <laughs> What did she say? <laughs> she said, really? Show me. So I sang for her. I sang exactly what my brother was singing, saying at church. And so like, it, we went home, and it was Easter Sunday, so it was Easter dinner. And my, everyone's talking about my brother and how great he sounded. And he was like, it's really, really good. My grandmother piped up and said, you know, Corey can sing. <laughs> that was it. That was it. That was basically the end of the story. It's like, really? And my was like, so why don't you join the choir? I was like, I don't know, join the choir. And I joined the choir. How old were you? Eight. <laughs> you were like eight trolling on your brother. Yeah, like, just like, what he's doing is shit. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. Anybody can do that. Can do that. <laughs> what is that? But you really could do that. I could. I, and I, were you as good as him, but not getting the recognition? Or not? No, yet? I wasn't. No, not I wasn't. Yet, I just, I just felt like it was undue sort of like accolades to my brother. <laughs> like I just did like that because he was always giving me shit. Was it just the two of you? <laughs> no, I was just th- it was three of us, and I'm considerably younger than m- my brother and sister. My brother and sister are like nine and nine, ten years older than I am. So I, your eighteen year old brother, and yeah. you're eight, and yeah. you're like, that ain't shit. I can do that. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> like I wasn't. I wasn't phased by him. To an eight year old, that's a man. <laughs> Yeah, I would yeah. not think like, oh, I could do what an eighteen. He's like, he's eighteen. He's magical. Yeah, like, no, but you're like, no, 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 no. I don't care. I don't care. I have to. I, we lived. We were in the same room, and he kept talking. He's always talking shit. Like, I can't stand you. Find a way. I'm gonna find a way. I'm gonna find some shit. Just go get back at you. And twenty years later, uh-huh. <laughs> where's Tommy now? Living with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Hey, listen, we live together now. Wow. Shout out to Tommy. Yeah. Much love. So you, but this is important though because the black church in particular was a huge incubator of a lot of talent. Absolutely. That would go into soul, would go into funk, would mm-hmm. go into rock, mm-hmm. a little into hip hop, mm-hmm. and you are part of like pretty much a late wave of that. Right. Uh, you know because. But I think by the 2000s, that became very rare. But you still saw that some in the 90s, mm. some? Yeah. Especially coming out of the South. But in the Northeast. In the Northeast, it wasn't, late, that wasn't it. You're growing up in the 80s, getting the church experience. But bands came out of it, though. What like, is, but the church gives you an audience that will listen to you, whether you're good whether or I'm not. Whether I'm good or not. Right? A, and a, I wasn't a, good. A group, but then there's also a group of singers that are going to work with you and kind exactly. of show you the rope. What else are you getting from being in the church experience? Well, you're you're learning, you know, what works in terms of emotional content. Mm. You know, this is, all this is supposed to be inspiring. This All this music is supposed to uplift you in some way. But what I realized was that there was a, and some of it had a melancholy to it that you had to really lean into, that you had to really figure out where to find the joy and the sorrow, where you had to find the uh, the point at which it crescendos, mm-hmm. and that that's not you. That's not very much a vocal thing, but a presentation thing. Mm-hmm. 
Like there, there are vocal things that you say. The, the high note and everybody's everybody's elated, but there's much more to it than that. And doing that, and then finding myself in uh, in high school, finding myself in theater classes and acting classes, and learning that there's there are emotional points in every scene, and then equating that to the music that you're singing. Interesting. And then, then then it becomes a connection to it. And is it then then it becomes whole at that point. So there's a story that you have to tell. So at eight he joins the choir. Right. Starts singing. Right. At what point did you say, Oh, I am actually really good at this? <laughs> Girls. Girls told me. Like like I don't I don't have to look at you to hear when I hear you it's a different story but like dealing with you as a person that's a, that's one thing but when you sing <laughs> that's hard <laughs> when you sing it's a different story like and that was really sort of my impetus for it when you were a teenager yeah, you absolutely. start getting attention from the exactly. girl. I didn't really like you when you tried to take it to me but <laughs> right. when you sang but if, but, if I, but if I opened my mouth to sing it was a different thing and, th- and that's when you started saying, oh, I'm actually really good at I'm this. I'm going to do this for a living. <laughs> oh, you said when you 13, 14? 14, 14, 15 is like, this is me. This is what I want to do. Or like, this will be, this is my backup because what I really want to do was be a pilot or something. I, mean, I had some pie in the sky idea about what I wanted to do, but I had this in my back pocket for anything else. Mm-hmm. So, but the fact that I could actually. I see this in hindsight. The fact that I that my vocal ability made people move people was what I was really dealing with. Like that, I could elicit something out of somebody. Like I could do this for a living, maybe because the only people I knew who really could do that was Michael Jackson. But you knew <laughs> that you could make people feel something exactly. So then I got something right. I got that, that's more something. than just a technique, but I can make you right. It's, and it's much more than something that i learned it's something innate in me that that i know i have that in i know i have that as a part of my what did you have innately personal, that you brought to it my ability to make a sound that people reacted to mm. that and it, and what i found out in the process of that 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 sound was unique that that sound didn't sound like anybody else i couldn't i wasn't in, in as much as I wanted to be a, an R&B singer or a soul singer, I don't sound like a soul singer or an R&B singer. I don't have that. I don't have that kind of. There's a gravitas to it. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a mm-hmm. there's a bigness to it. I have a big voice, but it there's there's a lot more. I thought uh, there's there there was not not a lot of subtlety in what. R&B singers did and I can't I couldn't imitate that that kind of thing the 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 overt sexuality of it I couldn't I really had to learn how to that stuff I had to learn uh the overt sort of uh push the pushing of of their personality if you will there's mm-hmm. a there's a that I was very early on when I was singing, I was basically imitating other people, trying to imitate other people. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I became like in the middle of my teenage years I realized I had my own voice, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that and that voice was not like what I said, not like the people I was imitating. It was my, it was Who my you own. imitating most. Michael Jackson. I was trying, I was trying to do, uh, 
that's trying to like the old all the doo-wop singers that I was listening to and you know and then and at the same time uh, there was Prince and there was Luther Vandross and there were all these other people that I was trying to imitate but I couldn't really couldn't quite get to I, that I couldn't get that I couldn't get that and what I realized was because it's not me it doesn't it wasn't it, it wasn't it's a part of me, but it's not the whole the whole picture of me. But so then, when you go to the Bad Brains show, you say, "Ah, this I can play." Because yeah, right. Because how had, old are you at the Bad Brains show? Seventeen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Only singing in church yeah. through this time, or I would, you start I would, going to clubs. I started going to clubs, and I started to try, try to get in other groups. And you know, I'm also an actor at the time, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of Broadway stuff that I, I'm trying to do. So I have this legit voice as well that I have to have for auditions. And that's what I found that, 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 that was the, how I learned how to project because you have okay. to, because you're doing Broadway stuff and you're doing, you know, Pippin or whatever, the, whatever the show was. Okay. And you had to, you had to sing to the back of the room. Yeah. And, and it had its own sort of timbre and it had its own sort of had a thing that I added to what I did. So when I auditioned for, uh, Broadway was one thing, but if I auditioned for somebody's R and B band, it was like, nah. I, I mean, we at one point we were trying to get a rec- Living Colors trying to get a record deal, and the guys note one of people's notes that came back to us was like, yeah, I like the band, but the singer sounds too much like Ben Vereen. <laughs> it's like, it's like I sound like I, like I had a Weird. I had a a a, a theatrical voice. That's mm, mm. what he was trying to say. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. 
Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. So, okay, the beginning of you in living color Mm. is... You're at a birthday party, <laughs> and you're just giving the mic, sing happy birthday, and Vernon Reed, the brilliant genius guitarist, of, is there, and he hears you, and he's like, that's the guy? This story is real? It's real. It is real. This For- sounds like the movie version <laughs> of- It's not a- it's- Oh, yeah, they just forced me to sing happy birthday. And it's a- I mean, it's like Rita Hayworth. Like, yeah, you yeah, yeah. went to the town, <laughs> and they just- Oh, Schwab, man, you're so yeah. beautiful. Become a model. Become yeah. an actress. Yeah, I was- I was at this girl's birthday party. This girl, I, 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 we, we were, we weren't dating at the time, but we had had dated, and she lived up on Upper West Side on Central Park West, and she, and she had all these people here, all these people there, and including Vernon and his sisters. And, and how'd she know Vernon? Vernon's sisters knew her. Mm, six degrees. <laughs> yeah, and Vernon had just got off the road with like defunct or something like that and his sister had complained that we don't hang out anymore it's like okay we don't hang out anymore what do you want to do well my friend's having this birthday party on the upper west side you want to go like yeah all right i'll go so i was invited to this party i came to the party by myself um they are they literally wheel out this birth, this giant ass birthday cake with the candles on this is it. a big party like 100 person party it's about 50 people there okay and they, she says, nope, nobody sings happy birthday. He sings happy birthday. <laughs> like, it's, I'm in a corner somewhere, like, no, it's like, you want me? But y'all had, y'all had dated a little, so she knew you could work. I, I, that's how I got it. I sang at her, and that's the only way I had to ah. And so she knew I could sing. So it's like, no, you do, you sing happy birthday. So I did. Did you put I, your back into it or you I, just do your thing? I just sang happy birthday. Nothing nothing special? It wasn't I don't know what how special it was. It, <laughs> I, I don't it was just happy birthday. And I sang it and Vernon made a beeline to me afterwards. It's like, yeah, I really like the way you sang that. Had like, you met? No. Hi, like, I'm Vernon. That was amazing. Hi, I'm that sounded great. It's like Cool. Turns out he lives six blocks away from me. We're did, both from Crown Heights. Did you know who he was even? No. No. Some guy. Some guy like, just walked up hey, to me. that was great. Yeah, you in a band? I'm like, no, I'm not in a band, but I'm trying to start a band. I'm trying, trying to get in a band. It's like, all right, cool. Can you, get your number. I may, have some, I may be able to find something for you if, you, if you're so inclined. It's like, okay, cool. And didn't hear from him for a year. Oh. <laughs> I didn't hear from him for, for like at least a year. And he was like, yeah, I'm looking for a singer from my band. You mind coming over and listening to some of the music, and we'll see how it works out. And like I said, I live off. I lived on Brooklyn Avenue and Eastern Parkway. Vern lived on Empire Boulevard, like literally six blocks away. 
I hadn't, we lived that close to each other, had no idea who each other was. <laughs> and so I went to his house. He's lived with his parents too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the future of rock royalty. We're living with our parents, making it happen. Right. Um, so he plays me some of the stuff. He plays like I Want to Know and Funny Vibe and all this other stuff. And I was like, this is great. I'd love to try it. So I auditioned and I went back and we did it again and went back and did it again. And then I didn't hear from him. And like a month and a half later, he calls me. He's like, look, our singer can't do the gig. It's like, oh, I, I didn't get the gig is what you're saying. So <laughs> I didn't get it, but your man can't do it. So you're going to call me for it. And turns out that the singer that they hired um, didn't really want the gig. Say so because okay. he, he had a, he had he had other gigs. He's doing really he's doing bigger things. He was a, he was a trumpet player. He was he was out on tours. He was doing bigger t- shows. He, he didn't want to go to he, he didn't want to go to CBGBs to play for twenty dollars. This is basically what he was saying. So he wasn't coming he to this gig, up. right? He didn't want to go to the gig. He didn't want to do the gig. So he's like, all right, so come, can you do it? I'm like, of course I can do it. Um, because what am I doing on a Saturday night? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Right, so I and I went and did the show and was in it ever since, and then never left. At what point did you say, "Hmm, I come from soul music, and this is rock," right? And like, this is a change for me, but I'm I I can flow with this. But it wasn't a change for me because I wanted to be in a rock band. Okay, because you already realized that's where I can trigger. That's where I can really do what I do because it had it it. It had the pathos. It had the aggression. It had it, it, and the music that Vernon had played for me at that point in time was really coming from a place that I really sort of connected with. I understood it. I understood. I understood where all the all the the, the disparate parts were coming from. That that it had, yeah, it had some real sort of uh, rock roots. But in the same way that Santana had real rock roots from his own perspective, right? And growing up where we grew up, you know, there was all kinds of stuff coming out of it, come, all kinds of music that you could you could get your get your hands on, not least of which was you know jazz music and, and rock music and salsa music and all kinds of different things. So why not just combine them? Why not find a way to combine them? Mm. And you know, this was like the early, mid-early 80s, and this was, you know, this new wave music was, and whatever's going on downtown, and the hardcore scene downtown, so like everything was possible. Anything, you could put anything at anything. Like, you go to CBGBs on any night, at, at some point you see somebody playing with a drum machine and uh, an accordion, and, you know, it's all kinds of different things that you could put together. That This particular thing that Vernon was doing I really related to. It was incredibly fast. Yeah. When you went from doing the small, basically underground club scene of right. New York right. to putting out Cold of Personality and being a national phenomenon. Well, there was some, there was some times, like, like I said, we were in the Econoline van, all piled in there with the gear, driving to driving down to Florida and drive, and, and every little small hick town in between driving ourselves getting to the gig setting up our own gear putting things on putting it up and playing hundreds and of those gigs hundreds of those gigs before even before 
cult of personality was a thing. I mean, the fact that we did the Stones tour was a revelation to us because, first of all, we had a bus. So no one had to drive. (laughs) (laughs) It's big. It was big. big. When the shows are eight to ten hours apart, that's big. That's big. And we were playing in places you could fit all of the gigs that we had played up until that point into one stadium. Now, wait, when you were doing the Green Book thing, moving around the <laughs> South, driving yourself, <laughs> did you have problems? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, th- those th- those are the days when, like, really sort of interest. The interesting thing was we pulled up to a truck stop. It's like, all right, who's first of all, who's the first person they're going to get out? Is it you? Is it the guy with the long dreads down to his ass with different colored shit? Or is it going to be the guy with the with the high top fade dreads, or the other two other black guys in the band? It's like you four black guys are going to get out of a van and walk into like some of the the just bad scenes, just bad bad scenes. And so that was that game. And then there was a game is like when somebody would inevitably say, "So what do you guys do?" Because you look like you come from, I don't know where you guys come from. What are you guys doing? The question we would then ask is, you tell us what we do. And they'd come up with all kinds of, well, you're obviously a band. I see, I see the equipment, yeah. So what kind of band do you think we are? Are you a reggae band? No. Yeah. Are you a gospel band? <laughs> no. Um, but did everything but a rock band. Did anything ever happen? We came, some, sometimes it would come close and somebody would... Uh, cooler heads would prevail like we'd be in a restaurant and we'd hear somebody saying something over our shoulder and we'd get up and it's like all right all right all right all right you get somebody's gotta somebody has to leave and or there was gonna something's gonna go down and and this like this is like in rhode island (laughs) i mean it's not like we're we're not in alabama you know we're in providence rhode island and that kind of shit would go down so we knew that if we had gotten into something, anything, the first people they were going to get was us. Like we would be taken, we'd be hauled yeah. away and not them. Yeah. So we had to, we had to be cool about it, but not for nothing. Me and William E. Calhoun, the drummer were always ready. <laughs> we're always ready. Always like, ready. <laughs> Like Jesus, what are, I mean, like we're just you know, that's crazy. You're just trying to make a career, right? And you know, we're just always ready for a fight, always ready for some oh, drama. It's like something's gonna happen. Something's gonna happen. The first, the first iota of information I knew about you was it's a black rock band. <laughs> the second iota of information I knew before I even heard Cult of Personality was Mick Jagger co-signs that. Right. How did Mick come into the picture before? Right before there was even music publicly released well there was a there was you know there was there was no record out but there was a buzz in new york city about about what we're doing in the in the black rock coalition from the club scene from the club scene from like playing at you know the pyramid club okay oh god um (laughs) why you say it like that oh my god we played in holes we played in like just like rooms about the size of this room to about three people we play we we, we'd be there playing takes um and we would all over downtown. I mean, if you love it enough to trek to a hole to do it, be it rock, poetry, mm-hmm. whatever, for three people, 
then you found the thing you love and you'll keep doing it until right. it succeeds. Well, that, and that's what we did. We kept going. We never stopped. Um, and we, like, every other week we were at CBGB's. Every, like, every other day we were, we had, we were rehearsing. We were, like, but CBGB's was not a whole, I mean, it is a whole, it was a whole, yeah. but, I mean, like, you, it was, it was, that was legendary the, and vaunted and like, oh my god! Yeah, but if you're there on a Wednesday night, it's not the same. It's not that thing. <laughs> it's not that place. It's just sawdust and, and bullshit going on. There's that, just nothing. There's nothing happening. It was that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, 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 at that point, it was like some. There's a lot of bands that came out of there. It's like that's great, but not when we were really playing there. But it it garnered a lot of attention that we were doing it, and people were actually coming to check it out. Um, and not least of which was some some of the writers from the Rolling Stone from Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah, had seen this band and thought this is something. David Frick. Frick. Yeah. Was he the main one? Yeah. Frick was Frick was clearly the guy who was really in our corner, and Frick had said something to Jagger, and at the time he was rehearsing here for one of his solo albums and recording a solo album here. And one of the people in the band was Doug, Doug Wimbish. So people would come in and it's like, like you're looking for, we're looking for a guitar player. Like, well, Frick said, well, you should check out Vernon. And Doug's like, oh, Vernon? I know Vernon. Vernon would be great. You should bring him in. Have you heard his band? Like, no. And so Frick and Doug would sort of tout the virtues of living color. So, one he made a he made a call and asked Vernon to come in to audition for him for Jagger, and Jagger was like Jagger said to him, "Well, I was there because he didn't want to go alone, and I was there." And he was like, "I heard a lot about you boys." And I'm like, "Why is Jag- Mick Jagger talking to either one of us? I have no <laughs> idea." It's like I hear you guys. Your band's really good. It's like, and we offhandedly said, "Yeah, you know, we're playing at CBGB's day after tomorrow," and he showed up with Jeff Beck, <laughs> <laughs> guitar god, <laughs> right? Like, wow. <laughs> so it was like, and he's like, "Wow, yeah, you guys sound really good. If there's anything I can do, just let me know. I'll give you a hand." And he came with this idea. He was he was recording down on Forty Eighth Street. And he's like, I rented out the whole studio as one does, I guess. Mm. And there's, and there's, I have there are other little studios. We can come in there at night after I've finished working, and we can work on your demo. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we did. We went to we went oh, we went to Right Track Studio on Forty Eighth Street. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, and we were. Rec- what does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals. Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus 
a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Toray for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Reported, like, Which Way to America and Glamour Boys. That was huge. Yeah. Having Mick Jagger standing behind you before you even started. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, it's like we had no idea. It was like we thought, okay, we got to this point. This will be helpful. What we really want to do is be get out of New York City. Right. Like the bubble of New York City is one thing. What's this what's this gonna how's this gonna play in Paducah, Illinois? Right. You know. Now, there was one thing that um, out of that little story that jumped out mm. at me when you said his band, right, Vernon's band, yeah, ninety nine percent of the time, people think of the fr- it's the front man's band. <laughs> yeah, it's not. The, the Living Color was always Vernon's band. It was Vernon's. It, it was Vernon's band up until a point at which we all sort of sort of contributed to what the what this the sound of the band was going to be. How did you didn't like it at all? <laughs> Didn't like Vernon's band at because all. it was literally called Vernon Reed's Living Color for a really long time. It was like, okay, so what the fuck am I doing? Is Vernon singing the songs? You know, hell, is Vernon carrying all of his gear? You know, <laughs> he went from singing to carrying the gear. That's what he really cared about. <laughs> who's singing and who's carrying the gear? I carried a lot of gear. I carried a lot of gear. <laughs> I, was, I was Will Calhoun's drum tech for a very long time. As the band had a record deal, I was still Will's drum tech. But um, it was we understood that 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 there was something that there was they had to, something for people to hold on to, and I, we understood that. But I, at a certain point, we had, we felt like we had established that the band really made what this what this is. Mm-hmm. Vernon is, is an amazing intellect, an amazing musician, an, an incredible guitar player, but it's not done. It's not done in a vacuum, and right. none of it will ever be done in a vacuum. And that really was a was an issue that we had to work out. Really had to work out. Was it an abstract notion, or was it well, that motherfucker has fifty one percent, and he makes the decisions, and I don't always like his decisions. What th- there was at one point, it was that. It was that until. There was a point at which, like, well, look, we are doing equal amount of work in this, so we should have equal amount of say. And I can get my ass up on my shoulders if I wanted to and just like, you know what, I don't feel like singing this shit. I don't really want to do it. I don't, want it. I don't feel like doing it. And it would become an issue and it, because – I feel like I'm I'm contributing a quarter of what this of the whole. Yeah. And I should be recognized for it. Now and we really tried to really work that out. That work it out at rehearsals, work it out 
at the gig. Work it out. What does that mean? Talking? Talking about it, how things, how songs were performed, really, was it was about that. It was like, this is not about, we're not featuring just a guitar solo. It's not about just the guitar solo. There, there are lyrics here. There are words here. There are feelings here. There are emotions here that we all contribute to. That all has to be a part of it. That all has to make sense. Not just to an audience, but to us as well. Because it feels like I'm doing a lot of work for for somebody else to get the credit for. Was Vernon accepting of, yes, this should be a group, or was he fighting to maintain No, he power? was. he wanted it to be a group. And I think... You know, this, even though we were all relatively green in terms of a band and being a band, we knew that we would, that our strength lies in cohesion. Vernon had been doing this for so long and doing, having this idea for so long that he felt like, I think the people that were working with us felt like, he is the focal point because he is the he's the tip of the spear. Right. You know what I mean? That he's he's the driving force in in this in this endeavor. And that's that that is true, but it evolves. Right. It has to evolve. People who are consuming music now and are significantly younger than us <laughs> probably cannot conceive of what a massive impact MTV Oof. had on the music business when it started to blow up in the 80s mm -hmm. and by the time you guys came along they were at peak uh, cultural power yep. they set the tone if they played your video you would become if they gave you that 40 spins or more a mm -hmm. week you became huge if you, they didn't you did not <laughs> They got way behind Cult of Personality. They, they played it all the time in prime spots. Yeah. Um, that was a rocket ship for your career. It was. And, and you know, we solved a bunch of problems for MTV. <laughs> you, know, you did. We solved. You did. That, that's I think, interesting because to tie back to the beginning, yeah. it was David Bowie right. who said, you guys are not playing black artists, and I'm not going to be part of this anymore if you don't start playing black artists. I think that was 83, 84 mm -hmm. that he said that, and mm -hmm. then they started to open up more. Then they started playing more black music. But initially, MTV kept saying we're a rock, we're like a rock radio station. Right. Saying there are no black rock bands. Like we thought, we said, well, that's bullshit, because there are. There are lots of them. And so we solved their ills by saying okay here is a black the it, at its core this is about the music is about the african-american experience mm -hmm. um at its core there is a, there is a visual element to what we look like mm -hmm. other than the fact that we're black mm -hmm. um and there is that was me um <laughs> um and they and the song was compelling because it wasn't particularly talking about i'm black y'all i'm black y'all i'm blackly black and i'm black y'all right you know right that's that's part of the reason why it sort of gave them an impetus to put it on and to play it because we're still in the post '60s protest generation zeitgeist idea of 
what w- that music is going to say something. Right. That we've, you know, we got to find somebody who's going to at least say something and not say nothing in their estimation of what nothing or something is. And we sort of fill that gap. Where did the being black make it hard to be in the rock industry? Like, where exactly does it come in? I don't, you know, it, there was, there's a point at which, obviously this is, this is all, this is all for commercial gain, right? And commercial gain, it, so you're, you're selling to the broadest audience you can get. And, or you which, what you consider the, the, the median audience who don't look like us. You know, so if you it there was a there was um during the making of Vivid, there was the question: Are you going to put our faces on the on the album cover? That was a big that was a big conversation because if you put our faces on the album cover, they're going to automatically assume it's not for you, it's not for everybody, it's for a specific person, right? So there is that. Idea. Which side were you guys on? We wanted our fix cover, and we, we and wanted our la- faces on the cover. And the label Columbia, it was, yeah, it's Epic, and Epic did not want you on the cover. Epic had had reservations about us. Was your A and R saying, "Don't put their faces on the cover"? There was the the A and R was like, "Should we? Shouldn't we?" And we were like, "Hell yeah, you should." And they're like, "No, mm, I don't know." This is, I mean, this is if you put that in a movie. Mm. I, that's a caricature. This ridiculous that they're arguing about in 1988 whether or not their faces should be on the cover of the CD. Mm-hmm. That's insane. It is insane, but it's but true. But it really happened. It was true, it's, and it happened. There was a there was a long labored discussion as to what whether whether it would be artwork or picture or, or a picture of the band, and the compromise was on the front cover would be artwork and the back cover there would be a picture of us. But what that says is that you don't. But you pick up the, the CD and look at the cover first. Mm-hmm. And if you if you're compelled enough by the cover, that's fine. Then turn it over. Go. Oh shit! But it's a very <laughs> old argument because MTV was going to be the prime introducer of Living Color, right? No, not the, radio. Most what, people found you first through MTV. But we were we were going through all traditional routes. We were going. Well, of course, to, we were gonna we were gonna go through radio. We were gonna go through uh, like live performances. It was fortunate for us to know what you look like. They, at some point, they were gonna they're when gonna we showed up. <laughs> yeah, when we showed up. They were like, guess what? Guess what? <laughs> oh my God, mommy. Right. So. That was going to, we sort of benefited from the idea that the, that that music was becoming a visual medium, and it would have you'd have to deal with who and what we are as black people, as people who have a perspective that at 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 the same time it connects with what rock and roll was had a unique perspective on the idea of what rock and roll was. Yeah. So. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it was something. Are there, are there other places? Because we alluded to, it was AOR, album-oriented radio, which a lot of performers, a lot of people in the industry call apartheid-oriented radio, mm-hmm. right? Radio stations either had the rock playlist where they played white music 
or an urban playlist where they play black music, and you guys were a challenge to both. We were, we were because we wanted we wanted people to know that rock radio. We wanted to desegregate rock radio as much as we wanted to desegregate black radio. Mm-hmm. We wanted who was more resistant? Which one of those groups? They were equally as resistant. Mm-hmm. Really, they were because it's like, why am I going to play th- this song with loud blaring guitars? Says black radio. Mm-hmm. It's like white radio is like, how are we going to play this song when the guy sounds like he's come straight out of the church? Mm, interesting. And clearly isn't, you know, long blonde hair, isn't doing what shit. I wasn't doing any of that. That it's clearly had a perspective that was not of the quote unquote mainstream. So we got resistance on all ends. And to the point where, you know, cognizant of that, we decided we wanted on the next record, we were going to make songs that sort of sounded like you where you couldn't place them. (laughs) We didn't want you if, if to challenge the, the notion of what radio was supposed to do, which I guess is to sell soap. um, Yeah. Was that we're going to make music that really does not have a, have a, clear rock clear clear white radio clear black radio message and just it has our perspective that's why type was sounded the way it did that's why it was the first single and it was really talking about what type of person do you think i am what type am i what what do you what does that say about you that you have to put me into a you have to make me into a stereotype mm. that you have to make put me in, that you have to make me fit into a mold in order for you to for it to be palatable to you um i want to pull back the lens just a little bit what is the difference between a good front man and a great front man Good front man sings. Sings is, is an impressive singer. A great front man is somebody that you immediately like. Immediately. Or immediately dislike, for that matter. I think um, you. Magnetic. Right. Charismatic. Right. That you can't keep your eyes off of them. Mm. You know, that. If they, it, it's even when they're not singing, there's something compelling about them that you have to take a look at them, that you have to keep focus on on them. And sometimes it's for dangerous reasons because you don't know what the fuck they're going to do next. They may set the stage on fire. They may do something. The, the, you know. the, the guy who says, I'm truly crazy. I might hurt myself. I might hurt you. Right. I might, like that is, I mean, like, whoa, you can't, right? I mean, that's a right. real, like. I, somebody said, a friend of mine said, you know, something compelling about a singer is, he might kill me. Mm, he might kill me. You know, just just the two perspectives of the idea makes a great. I think makes a great frontman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a great singer. A great singer is just can pull off amazing feats of 
technical things that anybody I, I I give props to anybody who can particularly who can play who who can maintain what they do in the midst of a cacophony of noise behind them mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> and can either control it or live in it did you become the leader of the band or never 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 always never. vernon oh no no never uh, not always vernon either that i always believed in in it being a collective i think i i, I defer to vernon and everybody else because you know they i i i not i don't know why i'm saying this but i don't think i'm as smart as they are i don't i really don't think i'm as smart as vernon is Vernon is one of the most well, brilliant. Vernon's people. a genius. Vernon That's is a different. genius. That's different. Like, and I just like I most feel, people are not that. Th- no, and he's hard to talk to sometimes. Thank like, God. Where, where, what do you? Thank think? God. It looks like <laughs> you know, I'm a smart guy. I am not that. He's not that guy. <laughs> I'm not that, that guy. Is, that guy's special. And, he's, and and it's it's clear that he's special. That he's got a that, that he thinks in a very unique kind of way. And I defer to that uniqueness uh-huh. to a to a degree. I mean. Honestly, there are some some places that we diverge. We all diverge. It's at some point, in so, in some way, shape, or form. But really, what this band is and has become is in large part to Vernon Reed's intellect. Of course, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And that that I cannot deny. So, okay, you guys have a really interesting uh, later history in that you broke up. Yeah, you got back together. Yeah, and you're still together today yes now let's go back to something i've been wanting to ask you for 15 years <laughs> why'd you break up because i tried i tried when i was at mtv i tried i talked to vernon i'm like can we get all four of y'all to come together to talk about why y'all and he was like sure and then i never heard anything else no. the rest of it was like no we ain't no one hell no but no. come on it's 15 years why did you break up in 95 we were a we were burnt we were just Tired of each other. Tired of each other. Tired of being on the road. Tired of playing these same old stupid ass songs. Just tired. Tired. And tired of micromanaging what it was and how it was. And tired of, you know, management not really getting it. And tired of really trying to fit things that didn't need to fit mm. into in, into a situation you know and honestly i think that we all thought that it was time that we sort of spread our own wings and do our own thing and and everybody thought that everybody in was the one person a little bit more ahead of the other saying i'm sick of this more than you guys are sick of this I don't know. I don't know. I think we were all. There's we usually were. one person. Well, Vernon pulled the trigger. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> Vernon was like, right, if you don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. It's fine. He was the first one to say enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But everybody felt it. Everybody knew it was coming. Everybody knew it was coming. At, the, at that particular point in time. Was it acrimonious? Only after the fact. Only after the fact because we didn't, we felt like we didn't really get a say in how it was going to get done. You mean how 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 it was going to be announced? How we were going to break it up? How we're going to how, how did we, it start? Were you at like we had a rehearsal and Vernon is like I'm sick of this. No, we were we hadn't we were we were recording in England, 
and the session was was good. It wasn't great, and it I'd gotten a, I'd gotten a gig at VH1 at the time, and everybody felt like they were like they were mo- there were much more important things in their lives than living color. Because we were burnt. It's like the idea of... You grow up and yeah, other things become important. Everything was... The, the, you know, I think we took for granted that Living Color was always going to be there. Mm. That's what it really was. It's like we all thought that this was going to be a constant thing. It's always going to be there. So why not go somewhere else to do something else to, to sort of hone your skills and come back? And that idea didn't really hold water. It's like... If you're gonna do something, go do something and let this let this rest for a while. Mm. And that was the conversation we were having. And by the time it and we were like we were working our way towards like, yeah, let's give it a rest. And next thing I know, there's an announcement Vernus Reed says the band's broken up. <laughs> oh, you were gonna have it be quieter. Yeah, we were. We, we didn't want to have to make an announcement don't about announce it. Anything? You know, there's no need for announcement. Just walk away, and yeah. we'll come back when it's time to come back. We didn't need to make an announcement. Because if you took ten years in to make a record, people would not be like, "Oh my God, what happened?" They right. would just let you do. Oh, we're extended hiatus. Right. You know, what was the big deal? I, I needed to go to an ashram and were you just, whatever. <laughs> so were you? So it became acrimonious when you saw. That it became that it became public knowledge, and then like, you're upset. Then we were then all of us were sort of like, why do that? Why do that? Just let's just let it let you it lie. Really mad at each other. You no. mad at like, well, why did you do that? Right. But yeah, yeah. It's like we we could have done this without with, without. We're, this is family business. Nobody else needed to know this. Right. That's what that's where we were at. It's right. like this is this is really this is between the brothers. This is not. This ain't, this ain't for the street. This is, you know. This and is. Vernon had put it on the street. <laughs> right. And you were mad at him. Yeah, yeah, for that. Yeah. So how'd you get back together? We'd all, it's not like we stopped talking to each other. We all, we'd see each other, we'd hang out, we'd do stuff. Vernon had, uh, Vernon and Will and Doug had put together something where it was just the three of them doing something. And it was more jazz oriented. I had my own band. I would see. I'd go to their gigs. They'd come to my gigs. Um, Vernon, uh, Will, and Doug had a had a separate thing. It was sort of like this drum and bass sort of thing. And they had gotten mm-hmm. a gig, mm-hmm. um, head fake. And they had mm-hmm. and they had a gig at um, CBGP's. And it's like, why don't we just do half of it as a head fake gig and then call Vernon and. And Corey, and then see what happens. And it was December of nineteen ninety something, ninety nine or something like that. And we got together and we said, "All right, we're gonna rehearse. And if it sounds like shit, we're not gonna do this. If it's if it if if there's one note out of place, we're not doing it." And it sounded like it did. It sounded like. We we we'd never stop playing with each other. It was one of those things. Like as soon as we got back together, we were like right in sync again. And absolutely, like all right, let's do it, let's do it. And so we, there was it was announced as a head fake gig, and but the rumor mill had started that Vernon was that was going to be there, and I was going to be there, and so we get to this gig, and there's a people there. Like this is a head fake gig. Nobody really was checking for it. Like they everybody knew it was going to happen. It was going to go down. 
so Will Will and Doug did some stuff. Then I came on, and then Vernon came on, and then we started playing Living Color stuff. And people were like, "Yeah, let's let's go for it. Let's go for it." And then it was on. Yeah, it was on from then on. People who want to be singers, hmm. what should they know? What do they need to think about? You have to have something to say. You really have to have something to say. I don't think any singer worth anything is just a riff machine. You know, I there are lots of singers that, that, that can do that. There there are lots of singers who can who are who are technically proficient, but if they've got nothing to say, it makes no sense to do it mm. to me. Um, I can't let you go without talking about your part in one of the greatest movies of all time. Oh. You were in Platoon. <laughs> yes, it was. By Oliver Stone. <laughs> yeah. Which is one of the great war movies mm. ever, one of the great movies ever. What? How did that come about, and what was that like? I, like I said, I was an, I've been an actor since I was 14 years old, and I would audition for stuff, and I auditioned for movies. And one of the movies I auditioned for was Platoon, like for six or seven times, not mind you. I, right. I auditioned for this thing over and over again because producers changed and, and people, people – uh, uh, productions changed and everything it was changed constantly. So I auditioned for it, and then I heard through the grapevine that a friend of mine, a friend of yours actually too, Kadeem, <laughs> artisan, mm, oh yes, <laughs> had gotten a yes, part. Yes, different world. Yes, yeah, yes. Kadeem got it. Like, okay, <laughs> so, n- ah! it's another gig I don't have. <laughs> Perfect. You see that thirty years, thirty to life that he was in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he had six toes or eleven <laughs> toes. This <laughs> hysterical. He's he's amazing. I love Kadeem. Kadeem's my man. Um, he's and he's a really he's a good actor. Yeah. Um, and so he got the part. Like, good on him. <laughs> Couple you weeks. Bitter, <laughs> I was so I was, You take the L's bitter. Oh, I was heated. I was heated. Because as an actor, you get a lot of L's. <laughs> yeah. And you and you you, you just, live. You gotta, yeah, you gotta live in a state of just disappointment. <laughs> just, just constant disappointment. And, <sighs> and, and 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 once again, I did. But then a couple weeks later, I get a phone call from a manager, and she's like. Um, they're considering you for platoon. I was like, "What happened? With, what happened with Kadeem? Like, Kadeem what, does Kadeem's not doing it." Like, okay, so I'll, I'll call you back in a little bit and let you know what's going on. So, they, she call, like, hour later, she calls me back and says, "Okay, they're giving you the part. We're just working out billing and how you're gonna be, how you're gonna get there. You're leaving next week. Okay. Shooting in the Philippines." <laughs> Shit is real. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm getting myself prepared. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, I got this part. I got a part. Yeah. So she calls me again and says, okay, just want to make sure you got all your shots. It's like, yeah, I got all my shots. <laughs> okay, we're working out. We're working stuff out. You're leaving at the end of the week. Like, okay, cool, no problem. Like that. It's not next week. It's the end of the week. Since she called me on a Monday. I'm gonna leave on Friday. It's like, all right, cool. So she last time she calls like all right everything's cleared everything's good your tickets you leave tomorrow. So I got the call on a Monday. I was on a plane on a Tuesday. Uh, so I had to go. I had to walk down the block to Vernon's and say, "Look, uh, sorry, 
And this is in the middle. We went back. This is in the middle of Living Color. Actually, just the beginning. This is the beginning of when the band had really sort of it become cohesive. This is when this is when Muzzy and Will were in the band maybe three months at that point. And and you're no the, no no actually no they no, weren't no, even the, a band. It was the previous. It was the previous guys. J T. Lewis and Carl James who were, were still in the band. And we were getting offers to be opening acts for people. We were getting we were getting gigs. We we're starting to get some gigs. Like, uh, and you're like, I gotta leave for how long? Six three, months? Th- about three and a half months. I'm gonna be gone for three and a half months in the Philippines. I'll be back. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> I'll be back. Right. So, <laughs> what was that like? Oh, it was it was culture shock. It was re. It's total stone screaming at you. Total culture shock. Did they, they were trying to make you feel like you were in war? You know. By the time I got in there, the rest of the cast and crew, I was the last person to arrive. The ca- the rest of the cast and crew had been there a week. So they were living in this hotel in Manila for the first week. And by the time I got there, I had a day in the hotel. And then they sent us to the jungle. <laughs> and I'm tripping on the water running around backwards because we're on the side of the equator. I'm looking just like I've never been I've never been out of the country before in my life. And I'm stuck in the middle of the Philippines. And not only am I in the middle of the Philippines, I'm in the jungle. Mm. And I have two and a half weeks of basic training. You're in the jungle, baby. <laughs> I had to dig my own hole, foxhole ah. with Charlie Sheen. And I'm looking at him like, you look familiar. You was look... he crazy or was he cool? He was He was on his way. He was crazy. On... <laughs> he was on his way. <laughs> he was definitely on his way. You know, he because you know he was a Hollywood kid, so he's his his father was mm-hmm. of some importance and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the Hollywood community, and this is the son of. Mm-hmm. So he had a lot of. He felt he had, like he had a lot of privilege, mm-hmm. and he didn't understand why he had to be in a foxhole with this kid <laughs> from Brooklyn, and what the hell was going on, and you know, so two and a half weeks. In the jungle, doing basic training, field stripping an M16, all that shit. We had to learn it all in two weeks and then start shooting. And by the time it came up to for them to shooting, we were tired. We were worn out. But that's the look he wanted on our faces. He right. wanted us to look like we had been slogging through it. And these are these New York, L.A. actors who were just like not used to being anywhere outside of wherever it was they were. In the middle of this shit, and it was in, it was mind blowing. And Oliver Stone's up there fucking with you, and he is being a dick. <laughs> like what? What's he doing? I would like one day we were in this hotel, in this resort in the middle of m- middle of the Philippines. We got a day off, and I walked past. Oliver in in the hallway and he's like yeah I was just watching the rushes you're not doing it what do you mean I'm not doing it I'm trying to figure out I'm trying to figure out what what to do with you what do you mean what you're trying to do with me turns out he was fucking with me he's trying to get he's trying to elicit some shit out of me I didn't I I, I have no idea I'm 22 years old like the fuck you talking about I'm I'm giving you everything I'm out of here in the jungle you go back (laughs) what the fuck are you doing what are you doing and I'm in, in, in my head I'm like Am I gonna get fired? They're gonna send me home. Right, right. What? What's what's going on? And I had a pivotal scene. I got to shoot the next day, and I'm 
not ready. Not ready. And it's, it's so I don't know what to do with myself. I'm 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 there's tons of self doubt. There's tons of like like second guessing what my what my motivations are, what my moves should be, what I'm what I'm trying to do. And it was all an effort in an effort to get get an, elicit some sort of response. But he wanted to mind fuck you so that you would be at your wits end and confused and like I don't know what I'm wanted from the <laughs> Right, I'm. I've been here for two and a half months. You gonna fire me now? It's like, it's like. I'm, this, but he want to see that on your face. He you're like, see, I don't know what to do. Exactly, that's what he was looking for. And it turns out he, I wasn't the only person he did this to. He did to Sheen too. He did to everybody. <laughs> he did to everybody. That was his. That was his style. Just fucking with these guys. Just. But what? I mean, you talk about like appropriate for the song, right? Probably not doing that on Wall Street, <laughs> right? But like with you guys, it's right. like, well, that f- this fits here. I right. want there to be a maximum confusion, chaos right. mode. So it's, uh, you, you have to. You are in on the edge of your uh, your wit's end. Always, yeah. you're at a constant state of your of your wit's end, and that's what he wants to get out of out of every performance. Okay, what is it in you? That has led to your success. I, I have ambition. I, I, I have, I have a, I think I have a clearer sense of my ability than I may let on. But I, I I'm very clear about. I know what I can do. I know what, what you know what you, I know what you're getting if you ask me to do something. I know how to get that done and I'm going to do the work to get that done. And I think that breeds success. Mm, mm. What drives you? What do you want people to say about you when they see you? Corey rocked the screen. He rocked the Broadway stage. He rocked the, the CB stage or the, the garden or whatever. Like, what do you, what, what do you want them to say about you? That I, that, you know, that I knew that when they see me, they knew that that I was going to put it on, that I was going to give it to them, that I wasn't coming there to half-ass anything. I was. I'm not. Corey brings it. I'm gonna bring it, and I'm. And I'm not gonna. It's two. There's two modes. It's on and off. That's all. That's all you need to know. That's all it is. <laughs> right. When it goes on, it goes all the way on. Exactly. And when it's yeah. off, I'm all, I'm done. But when I'm I'm gonna do it until, uh, until I can't do it no more. And I'm gonna do it on. I'm, I'm gonna bring it to whatever performance I, uh, you ask me to do it to the to past eleven. It's past, past eleven. <laughs> once uh, once I get there. What's your superpower? Um, I'm loud. <laughs> I'm very very loud. <laughs> and, I, and I don't I don't mean loud just like volume. I am loud in volume, but I'm loud in my head. I'm la- like my my thoughts are loud. My, my intentions are loud. Thanks to Corey for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you that fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. And maybe this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert. Our editor is Brandon Tago, and our photographer 
is the great Chuck Marcus. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.